Welcome to Fast Asleep and a special welcome to Malaysia. We're so glad you've joined us. We're very, very grateful for all of you who keep coming to us. And please keep sending in your suggestions. We love hearing from you. Fast Asleep with Gina Marie at Gmail. All right, let's do this. It's time for part three of our F. Scott Fitzgerald tale. Uh, hey, there's only one more after this. And this story is wildly obsessed with wealth, right? And all the excesses of the jazz age. Hey, that's a term that Fitzgerald coined himself. You know, well, he was very successful, but it really wasn't until... Uh, after his death, at the age of 44, that's kind of young, right, that he received huge critical and popular acclaim. And now, well, he's regarded as one of the greatest American writers. So there were 164 of his short stories. We've done a few of them here. So let's tuck into ours, the one we have ready right now. All right, here we go. Get ready for a diamond as big as the Ritz. Now remember, we have just learned about the men in the cage. Braddock Washington drew a garden chair to the edge of the pit and sat down. Well, how are you boys? he inquired. Genially? A chorus of execration, cursing, in which all joined, except a few too dispirited to cry out, rose up into the sunny air, but Braddock Washington heard it with unruffled composure. When its last echo had died away, he spoke again. Have you thought up a way out of your difficulty? From here and there among them, a remark floated up. We decided to stay here for love. Eh, bring us up there. We'll find us a way. Braddock Washington waited until they were quiet again. And then he said, I have told you the situation. I don't want you here. I don't. I wish to heaven I'd never seen you. Your own curiosity got you here, and any time that you can think of a way out which protects me and my interests, I'll be glad to consider it. But so long as you confine your efforts to digging tunnels, yes, I know about the new one you've started, you won't get very far. This isn't as hard on you as you make it out with all your howling for the loved ones at home. Hey, if you were the type who worried much about your loved ones at home, you'd never have taken up aviation. A tall man moved apart from the others and held up his hand to call his captor's attention to what he was about to say. Let me ask you a few questions, he cried. You pretend to be a fair-minded man. Oh, how absurd. 
How could a man of my position be fair-minded toward you? You might as well speak of a hungry man being fair-minded toward a piece of steak. At this harsh observation, the faces of the two dozen steaks fell. But the tall man continued. All right. We've argued this out before. You're not a humanitarian and you're not fair-minded, but you are human. At least you say you are. And you ought to be able to put yourself in our place. For long enough to think about how, 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 how what? Demanded Washington coldly. Well, how unnecessary. It's not unnecessary to me. Well, then how cruel? We've covered that. Cruel's tea. Cruelty. That doesn't exist where self-preservation is involved. You've been soldiers. You know that. Try another. Well, then how stupid. There, admitted Washington. I grant you that. But try to think of an alternative. I've offered to have all or any of you painlessly executed, if you wish. I've offered to have your wives, sweethearts, children and mothers kidnapped and brought out here. I'll enlarge your place down there and feed and clothe the rest of you for the rest of your lives. If there was some method of producing permanent amnesia, I'd have had all of you operated on and released immediately somewhere outside of my preserves. But that's as far as my ideas go. Hey, How about trusting us not to peach on you, cried someone. You don't proffer that suggestion seriously, said Washington with an expression of scorn. I did take out one man to teach my daughter Italian. Mm. Last week, he got away. A wild yell of jubilation went up suddenly from those two dozen throats and a pandemonium of joy ensued. Oh, the prisoners clog-danced and cheered and yodeled and wrestled with one another in a sudden uprush of animal spirits. They even ran up the glass sides of the bowl as far as they could and slid back to the bottom upon the natural cushions of their bodies. The tall man started a song in which they all joined. Oh, we'll hang the Kaiser on a sour apple tree. Braddock Washington sat in inscrutable silence until the song was over. You see, he remarked, when he could gain a modicum of attention, I bear you no ill will. I like to see you enjoying yourselves. That is exactly why I didn't tell you the whole story at once. The man, now what was his name? Cricciatello? Yeah. Anyway, he was shot by some of my agents in 14 different places. Not guessing that the places referred to were cities, the tumult of rejoicing subsided immediately. Nevertheless, cried Washington with a touch of anger, he tried to run away. Do you expect me to take chances with any of you after an experience like that? 
Again, a series of ejaculations went up. Sure, would your daughter like to learn Chinese? Hey, I can speak Italian. My mother was Italian. Hey, maybe she'd like to learn to speak New York. If she's that little one with the big blue eyes, I can teach her a lot of things better than Italian. I know some Irish songs and I could hammer brass once. Mr. Washington reached forward suddenly with his cane and pushed the button in the grass so that the picture below went out instantly. And there remained only that great dark mouth covered dismally with the black teeth of the grating. Hey, called a single voice from below. You ain't going away without giving us your blessing, are you? But Mr. Washington, followed by the two boys, was already strolling on toward the ninth hole of the golf course, as though the pit and its contents were no more than a hazard over which his facile iron had triumphed with ease. July. Under the lee of the Diamond Mountain was a month of blanket nights and of warm glowing days. John and Kissman were in love. He did not know that the little gold football inscribed with the legend Pro Deo et Patria et San Midas, meaning for God, for country, and for, remember the school is St. Midas, which he had given her, rested on a platinum chain next to her bosom. But it did. And she, for her part, was not aware that a large sapphire, which had dropped one day from her simple coiffure, was stowed away tenderly in John's jewel box. Late one afternoon, when the ruby and ermine music room was quiet, they spent an hour there together. He held her hand, and she gave him such a look that he whispered her name aloud she bent toward him and then hesitated. Did you say Kissman? She asked softly, or she'd wanted to be sure. She thought she might have misunderstood. Neither of them had ever kissed before, but in the course of an hour, it seemed to make little difference. The afternoon drifted away that night, when a last breath of music drifted down from the highest tower, they each lay awake, happily dreaming over the separate minutes of the day. They had decided to be married as soon as possible. Every day, Mr. Washington and the two young men went hunting or fishing in the deep forests or played golf around the somnolent courses, games which John diplomatically 
allowed his host to win, or swam in the mountain coolness of the lake. John found Mr. Washington a somewhat exacting personality, utterly uninterested in any ideas or opinions except his own. Mrs. Washington was aloof and reserved at all times. She was apparently indifferent to her two daughters and entirely absorbed in her son, Percy, with whom she held interminable conversations in rapid Spanish at dinner. Jasmine, the elder daughter, resembled Kissman in appearance, except that though she was somewhat bow-legged and terminated in large hands and feet, but was utterly unlike her in temperament. Her favorite books had to do with poor girls who kept house for widowed fathers. John learned from Kissman that Jasmine had never recovered from the shock and disappointment caused her by the termination of the World War, just as she was about to start for Europe as a canteen expert. Oh, she had even pined away for a time, and Braddock Washington had taken steps to promote a new war in the Balkans. But she had seen a photograph of some wounded Serbian soldiers and lost interest in the whole proceedings. But Percy and Kissman seemed to have inherited the arrogant attitude in all its harsh magnificence from their father, a chaste and consistent selfishness ran like a pattern through their every idea. John was enchanted by the wonders of the chateau and the valley. Braddock Washington, so Percy told him, had caused to be kidnapped, kidnapped, a landscape gardener, an architect, a designer of state settings, and a French decadent poet left over from the last century. He had put his entire force of servants at their disposal, guaranteed to supply them with any materials that the world could offer, and left them to work out some of their ideas on their own. But one by one they had shown their uselessness. The decadent poet had at once begun bewailing his separation from the boulevards in spring. He made some vague remarks about spices, apes, and ivories, but said nothing that was of any practical value. The stage designer, on his part, wanted to make the whole valley a series of tricks and sensational effects, a state of things that the Washingtons would soon have grown tired of. And as for the architect and the landscape gardener, they thought only in terms of convention. They must make this like this and that like 
that. But they had at least solved the problem of what was to be done with them. They all went mad early one morning after spending the night in a single room trying to agree upon the location of a fountain and were now confined comfortably in an insane asylum at Westport, Connecticut. But, inquired John curiously, who did plan all your wonderful reception rooms and halls and approaches and bathrooms? Well, answered Percy, I blush to, to tell you, but it was a moving picture, fella. He was the only man we found who was used to playing with an unlimited amount of money, though mm, he did tuck his napkin in his collar, and he couldn't read or write. As August drew to a close, John began to regret that he must soon go back to school. He and Kissman had decided to elope the following June. Well, it would be nicer to be married here, Kissman confessed, but of course I could never get father's permission to marry you at all. And next to that, I'd rather elope. Oh, it's terrible for wealthy people to be married in America at present, where they always have to send out bulletins to the press saying that they're going to be married in remnants. And what they mean is just a peck of old second-hand pearls and some used lace worn once by the Empress Eugenia. I know, agreed John fervently. When I was visiting the Schnellitzer Murphys, the eldest daughter, Gwendolyn, married a man whose father owns half of West Virginia. She wrote home saying, what a tough struggle she was carrying on, on his salary as a bank clerk. And then she ended up by saying that, thank God I have four good maids anyhow, and that it helps a little. Oh, oh that's absurd commented Kissman. Think of the millions and millions of people in the world, laborers and all, who get along with only two maids. One afternoon late in August, a chance remark of Kissman's changed the face of the entire situation and threw John into a state of terror. They were in their favorite grove, and between kisses, John was indulging in some romantic forebodings, which he fancied added poignancy to their relationship. Sometimes I think, I think we'll never marry, he said sadly. You're just too wealthy, too magnificent. No one as rich as you are can be like other girls. I should just marry the daughter of some well-to-do wholesale hardware man, you know, from Omaha or Sioux City, and just be content with eh, her half million. I knew the daughter of a wholesale hardware man once, remarked Kissman. I don't think you'd have been contented with her. She was a friend of my sister's. She visited here. Oh, oh. Well, then you've had other guests, exclaimed John. 
in surprise. Oh, Kissman seemed to regret her words. Oh, yes, she said hurriedly. We've had a few. What? Aren't you, I mean, wasn't your father afraid they would talk outside? Oh, to some extent, yeah, to some extent, she answered. Let's talk about something pleasanter. But John's curiosity was aroused. Something pleasanter, he demanded. Well, what's unpleasant about that? Weren't they nice girls? And to his great surprise, Kissman began to weep. Yes. That, that's the whole trouble. I grew quite attached to some of them. So did Jasmine. Oh, but she kept inviting them anyway. I just couldn't understand it. Oh, a dark suspicion was born in John's heart. Do you mean that, that they told and your father had them removed? No, oh, worse than that. Worse, she muttered brokenly. Father took no chances, and Jasmine kept writing them to come. And they did have such a good time. She was overcome by a paroxysm of grief. Stunned with horror of this revelation, John sat there, open-mouthed, feeling the nerves of his body twitter like so many sparrows perched upon his spinal column. Oh, well, <sighs> now I've told you and I shouldn't have, she said, calming suddenly and drying her dark blue eyes. Do you mean to say that your father had them murdered before they left? She nodded. In August, usually, or early September. It's only natural for us to get all the pleasure out of them that we can first. How abominable! How? Oh, I must be going crazy. Did you really just admit that I did? interrupted Kissman, shrugging her shoulders. Well, we can't very well imprison them like those aviators. Oh, where there'd be a continual reproach to us every day. And it's always been made easier for Jasmine and me because, well, Father had it done sooner than we expected. And in that way, we avoided any farewell scene. So you murdered them? Huh, cried John. Well, it was done very nicely. They were drugged while they were asleep. And their families were always told that they died a scarlet fever in Butte. But I failed to understand why you kept on inviting them. I didn't, burst out Kissman. I never invited one. Jasmine did. Oh, and they always had a very good time. Why, she'd give them the nicest presents toward the last. I shall probably have visitors, too. I guess I'll just harden up to it. We can't let such an inevitable thing as death stand in the way of enjoying life 
while we have it. Oh, think how lonesome it would be out here if we never had anyone. Mother and father, why, they've sacrificed some of their best friends, just as we have. And so, said John, accusingly, and so you were letting me make love to you and pretending to return it and talking about marriage all the time, knowing perfectly well that I'd never get out of here alive. Oh, no, she protested passionately. Well, not anymore. I did at first. You were here. I couldn't help that, and I thought, well, your last days might as well be pleasant for both of us. But then I fell in love with you, and I'm honestly sorry you're going to, um, going to be put away. Though I'd rather have you be put away than ever kiss another girl. Oh, oh, you would, would you? cried John ferociously. Much rather. Besides, you know, I've always heard that a girl can have more fun with a man whom she knows she can never marry. Oh, why? Why did I tell you? I've probably spoiled your whole good time now. And we were really enjoying things when you didn't know about it. I knew it would make things sort of, um, depressing for you. Oh, you did, did you? John's voice was trembling with anger. I've heard about enough of this. If you haven't any more pride and decency than to have an affair with a fellow that you know isn't much better than a corpse, I don't want to have any more to do with you. <gasps> well, you're not a corpse, she protested in horror. <gasps> you're not a corpse. I won't have you saying that I kissed a corpse. Uh, I didn't say anything of the sort. You did. You said I kissed a corpse. I did not. Their voices had risen, and upon a sudden interruption, they both subsided into immediate silence. Footsteps were coming along the path in their direction, and a moment later the rose bushes were parted, displaying Braddock Washington, whose intelligent eyes set in his good-looking, vacuous face, were peering in at them. Who kissed a corpse? He demanded in obvious disapproval. <laughs> Nobody, answered Kissman quickly. We were just joking. What are you two doing here anyhow? He demanded gruffly. Kissman, well, you ought to be, to be reading or playing golf with your sister. Go read, go play golf. And don't let me find you here when I come back. And then he bowed at John and went up the path. See, said Kissman crossly when he was out of hearing. You've spoiled it all. We can never meet any more. He won't let me meet you. He'd have you poisoned if he thought we were in love. We're not anymore, cried John fiercely, so he can set his mind at rest upon that. 
Moreover, don't fool yourself that I'm going to stay around here. Inside of six hours, I'll be over those mountains if I have to gnaw a passage through them, and I'll be on my way east. They both got to their feet, and at this remark, Kismet came close and put her arm through his. I'm going too. You must be crazy. Of course I'm going, she interrupted impatiently. You most certainly are not. You. Very well, she said quietly. We'll just catch up with father right now and talk it over with him. Defeated, John mustered a sickly smile. Uh, very well, dearest, he agreed with pale and unconvincing affection. We'll go together. His love for her returned and settled placidly on his heart. She was his. She would go with him to share his dangers. He put his arms about her and kissed her fervently. After all, she loved him. She had saved him, in fact. Discussing the matter, they walked slowly back toward the chateau. They decided that since Braddock Washington had seen them together, they had best depart the next night. Nevertheless, John's lips were unusually dry at dinner. He nervously emptied a great spoonful of peacock soup right into his left lung. He had to be carried into the turquoise and sable card room and pounded on the back by one of the underbutlers, which Percy considered a great joke. And that's where we'll stop for now. Please don't miss part four, the conclusion. Good night.